In this episode, Tim Egan, a dear friend and colleague for many years, joins me to talk about how he leads a proficiency-based language department. Tim is the 612 department chair in Wellesley Public Schools in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Tim has so much to share, from teacher collaboration to anchor papers and success criteria. I know, some of those words and terms were new to me too. I can't wait for you to learn all about them as well. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Bonjour, mes amis. Hola, mis amigos. Welcome to the World Language Classroom Podcast. I am Joshua Cabral, and you know I have to start by saying thank you. You are an awesome educator because you're taking the time out of your week to listen to a podcast about teaching and to see what other teachers are doing in their classrooms and to think about what you're doing. So thank you so much for doing that. And as always, make sure that you are liking or following or subscribing apps or asking you to do different things, but just make sure you're doing that so that you get these episodes every Monday when they come out. Maybe leave a little rating, a little comment that always makes me feel good to know that you're out there and what you're listening and what you appreciate about it. That's always helpful. So now we're going to get into our topic for today, and I'm joined by Tim Egan, and we are going to focus on this whole idea of building a proficiency-focused or based language department. I think that we're in a transition period still, even though it's been going on for the better part of a decade, that a lot of departments are in this particular process right now. Personally, for me... I have been teaching for 26 years, and I am actually, for the first time this year, taking on the role of department chair in my school. So I definitely wanted to reach out to Tim Egan because he's somebody I really look to as a person who has led a really successful department that is focused on proficiency. So Tim has had quite the career. He's had about 31 years in the education field, and the last 17 of them have been in his role as department head in Wellesley, Massachusetts for the 6 through 12 language program. Previous to that, he was a classroom teacher, French, Spanish, and even a little Latin along the way. If you have attended NECTFL or ACTFL or MAFLA, the Massachusetts Association, you may have seen him out there on the circuit uh, and presenting on a number of different topics. And including this topic we're going to be talking about today, he will be taking on at ACTFL. So hello, Tim, and welcome to the World Language Classroom podcast. Hi, Joshua, and hello, everyone. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to be able to participate in this podcast. This is not our first time meeting. I think we've known each other. I'm going to say 10 years plus or minus somewhere in there uh, because Tim and I were actually on the board of directors together of the Massachusetts uh, Foreign Language Association, MAFLA. And Tim, you were actually president at one point, if I'm not mistaken, correct? 
I was. 2017, I was president. I always like to give those shout outs to the state language associations because they do such great work. And I think we met in 2007, actually. Okay. So, oh, it's been, it's been yeah. plus 10 years then. Yes. <laughs> wow. Do you remember where it was? It, it was at a MAFLA event. Okay. And I was not yet on the board because oh. I joined the board in 2008. And I remember the conversation with you about what was it like to be on the MAFLA board. Oh, wow. So I roped you in and then you became president. See, I avoided the whole executive track. <laughs> Well done. So can you tell us a bit about your workshops you'll be doing at Nectful and Actful that you have done so that we have a sense of sort of what you're doing out there? I'll be doing a session at Actful on success criteria. What are success criteria? Why are they so important? And what does it look like in practice in the classroom? Because I think that's often what teachers need is what does this look like in the classroom? The theory's great, but People need those tools, those takeaways. And so there's a session on success criteria. I'm also doing an actual session with Nicole Scherf on departmental collaboration. Nicole and I are taking that idea of collaboration and expanding it into a six-hour workshop for Nectful in March. So in New York City, we'll be talking to people in a full-day workshop on what does intentional collaboration look like. And Nicole Scherf is a professor at Salem State University, correct? Yes. That's in Massachusetts um, as well. And Tim is in Massachusetts in Wellesley. And so this idea of success criteria that Tim just mentioned as part of his upcoming workshop is going to be one of the themes that we are going to unpack today. So you're going to get a preview of that, and maybe you'll be enticed uh, to dive deeper with him in his workshop that comes up. So to get us started, Tim, I would like to know about your journey with proficiency. I mean, I've been at this for 26 years. You're at year 31. We won't say who's been teaching longer. We'll just let the numbers speak for themselves. But um, <laughs> Tim and I go way back. We could joke around about it. So I would like to hear about your journey towards proficiency, because when we were doing this 20 years ago, these weren't words we were using. So where, what has that been like for you? I started probably like so many language teachers in a job where I was hired right out of college, handed a textbook and said, this is the class, start at chapter one, and you should be at chapter 15 in June. And there were all kinds of ancillary materials. So I had my tests written for me, my quizzes written for me, really you could turn the page from page one to two to three, and that was the lesson planning. And it wasn't, frankly, very interesting. A couple of years into my career, I was hired in Salem Public Schools, the middle schools. There were two middle schools at the time, and they were just beginning to think about developing a middle school language program. They had only nine to 12 at the time. I was hired with a team of three teachers actually to sit down and write a language program and then implement it. I was fortunate to work with a colleague, Margaret Arnold, and I haven't spoken to Margaret. I, I, maybe she's listening and she's out there somewhere. She had just finished her master's at The Ohio State and was really into the idea of content-based instruction. Well, I had never heard the concept before. We started developing a program that was content-based, or so we, we hoped. We made a lot of mistakes, but we also did a lot of really great things. That was my introduction to the idea. That was in the early 90s. And so it was really groundbreaking. And it wasn't so easy to find literature on what, what language proficiency was. And 
on second language acquisition. Mm -hmm. But Margaret had a wealth of resources at her fingertips. And so we started to dive into that. And then we started having this emergence of research and literature on proficiency. So where did that enter into your teaching? And where were you finding those resources? Was that with books? I don't I'm I'm thinking early on, there weren't even blog posts about it. So how, what was that like for you? There weren't, but there were some online communities. There were chat groups, I guess, in the, in the mid to late 90s. I did a lot of TPR storytelling as, as you know, the way we referred to, I think, what people often call CI today. And we really referred to it as TPR storytelling when I was teaching at the middle school level in Newton, Massachusetts. And there were really robust online communities talking about language proficiency and talking about Stephen Krashen and his work. I happened to have a supervisor at the time in Newton who had a background in English as a second language. It always seems that the world for multi-language learners has always been at the forefront of understanding language acquisition, I think much earlier than world language teachers. And so my colleague, Jody Klein, who was my supervisor at the time, what introduced me to a lot of that literature. And we talked a lot about Stephen Crash. And it was about that time that I began graduate school. When I was looking for graduate programs, I couldn't find a language master's program that actually spoke to me. And I ended up stumbling upon UMass Boston's Critical and Creative Thinking Masters, where I was able to design an interdisciplinary program where I did coursework in philosophy of education, cognitive psychology, and applied linguistics. Mm -hmm. And so that really pulled a lot of that thinking together for me and began my, I think, a really focused path. So I actually got my master's at UMass Boston in applied linguistics in that program. So I can see where we, we have some common understandings there. It was a phenomenal program. And I know they have an online option. You can do it, I think, entirely online now. And so anybody listening, if you're looking for a good program out there, I cannot say enough great things about the Applied Linguistics program at uh, the University of Massachusetts, Boston. So now when we look at your approach in the classroom, I want to shift a little bit from actually what you were doing in your classroom as a teacher to your role as a, le a department leader. So 17 years ago, even, it was still the beginning stages of this proficiency. So when you took on your initial role of leading a language department, how did you initially start introducing this idea of proficiency? I will tell you, I probably started introducing the idea like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> Which worked well or... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was perfect. Yeah, that's it was all all everything was beautiful after that. And I have to say that, you know, a shout out to my entire department. Many, many of the people who I work with today were there when I started in 2008 in Wellesley. They were really patient with me because they understood what it was that I wanted to do. What I realized quickly on is I shared too much too fast and I needed to do a lot of assessment around what brain space did people have for what kind of information? And how did I need to divide my goals into long-term goals and short-term goals? And really, just like we would do in the classroom, right? Break it down for people 
so that they could take things on in bite-sized pieces, understand it, implement it, practice and get really, you know, build a skill set before moving on to something else, that the work is slow and deliberate. So what were some of those initials, I don't want to call them stumbling blocks, but those initial challenges or reservations from teachers that you could maybe give some advice on? When I would talk about proficiency, and I think this is true for many of my colleagues in NADSFL, so I'm on the executive board for the National Association for District Supervisors for Languages. And when I talk to many of my colleagues in that organization, they report the same kind of story that when we talk about proficiency to a group who hasn't really been initiated into the idea, and we talk about practices, they take a message away that grammar is the enemy and you should never teach grammar, right? And we know that the literature on explicit grammar instruction doesn't say like one, there's not one clear message about here's how to teach grammar. And if you listen to any any podcast, if you if you follow people like Florencia Henshaw, who does a really nice job of outlining some of that literature and some of those theories on her YouTube channel, or if you read Florencia and Maris Hawkins' new book, Common Ground, you can really pull together your understanding that there's no real simple, clear answer on what kind of grammar instruction is effective. It feels like it's for the first time this book... The Common Ground Book. It's groundbreaking what particularly Florencia Henshaw is doing is it's taking this divide of it has to be this way or that way and the right and the wrong way. And she's giving us finally this breath. You could just exhale a little bit and feel like there is a common ground. And that's that's wonderful, right? Yeah. I think it's easy for us as human beings to fall into a camp, I'm in this camp or that camp, when really we can look at a lot of different practices, whether you call them methods or approaches or whatever label you have, we can look at these different practices and see there are effective instructional choices that come out of all of those worlds. And a good program leader is going to look at what's effective and what's not effective. And let's learn from whatever those sources are, let's learn about effective instructional practices, things that lead to outcomes for students, regardless of what the label happens to be. And that's what Florencia Henshaw says all the time. I tweet it out at least once a week. She says, principles over labels. (laughs) You know, it's simple, it's concise, and exactly what you just said. So just real quickly, speaking of uh, your department that you just did a shout out to, I've actually had Mike Travers on the podcast speaking about grammar. (laughs) So, So it's interesting. And also you have Rebecca Blue Wolf is in your department, who was a former Actful Teacher of the Year. So there is there's some great stuff going on in your department, Tim. So we are definitely Thanks. looking to you for these questions. So now that we see this journey to bring proficiency to your, to your department, I want to stop and really look at the components and the process of doing that. This idea of success criteria, I think you had tweeted out the topic of your upcoming presentation or mention that word. And I have to say, I understand basically the concept of it, but the idea in the classroom, the language classroom, that's one that's new to me. And so I really want to unpack what that means. So talk to us about success criteria. 
Success criteria should provide a clear answer to three key questions. What am I learning? Why am I learning this? How will I know that I've learned it? Those three key questions serve to make learning intentions visible, both for the teacher and for the students. And so the research on success criteria, if you look at Visible Learning Meta X, which is a website, and we could maybe put that in the in the episode mm-hmm. notes, the, the potential effect size of success criteria is 0.88. And if you look at the literature on effect size in instruction, anything that's higher than 0.4 is believed to have a high impact on instruction. And so success criteria, when they're done well and with clarity, have a really, really high effect size. And when we look at the tools that we have in the world readiness standards, in the recently updated Massachusetts curriculum framework for world languages, we have really clear success criteria built into those world readiness standards, built into the necessful, actful, can-do statements. We already have these tools to begin building success Mm -hmm. criteria. So when we look at these three questions that you put out there, so what am I learning, why am I learning it, and how will I know that I learned it? With the how will I know, now specific to a language classroom, can we think of that as how will I use it? Or like, help me understand that a little better. So we can think of it in terms of looking at a targeted proficiency level, looking at those language functions that we might put into a performance assessment. And so we'll apply the principle of backward design, identifying desired results, right? That's our, that's our can-do statement. So it might be, I can exchange opinions with others on whether or not technology and social media bring people mm-hmm. together. So that's, those are our desired results. And then we have to determine the acceptable evidence. What's that performance assessment that's going to tell us and tell the learners that they've learned it, right? So you might write a prompt that something, I'm mm-hmm. going to make something up, okay? So you're at, a, you're at dinner one day and your host family is discussing technology and they want to know your opinion. And so you might really put out some details on a student's giving opinions about does technology bring us together or does it not bring us together? And so you're going to then plan learning activities, your daily can-do statements, your daily targets, and your checks for understanding to build students' capacity to be able to use that language function really thoroughly. And so you're going to do a lot of spiraling with vocabulary, language structures, kind of authentic moments for students to use that language. And it's going to build and build and build. What's really an essential component of strong success criteria would be mini performance assessments and lots of checks for understanding throughout every lesson so that students are getting feedback from the teacher or they're getting feedback from themselves and from their peers on how well they are moving towards developing the success criteria. And so the success criteria would then be sort of the how will I know? 
that I've learned or how can I use that? Yes. So even though we're saying it's these three questions, so the, the success criteria isn't what am I learning and why am I learning? It's essentially that, that third one, but it's that process of getting there. Right. It helps students and teachers monitor their progress. It provides multiple checkpoints on mm-hmm. that progress so that everybody is clear on how well the student's moving towards towards that learning. What's really a key component of that is having some models, some exemplars for students so that they can look at a successful piece of work, whether it's written work or uh, maybe a recording of a conversation and begin to identify what are the elements that make this particular piece of work successful. That's also really helpful for teachers in identifying anchor papers so that teachers can collaborate and agree on this is if you if you're in a place most of us are in a place where we have to give grades right and most of us have to give letter grades while maybe we don't love that so much let's agree on what does b work look like what does a work look like and let's make sure that whatever system we're using is really clear to students to families to teachers so that there's not a question around why is this a B and not an A. The, the term an anchor paper. And you kind of described it as you were just giving the examples, but how do you use that in your department? Our professional practice goal for this coming year, because we've gotten through the pandemic, we've gotten away, we had just started to do some work with finding anchor papers. Obviously, the pandemic took us away from that. And so each year, I develop a professional practice goal and a student learning goal for the department. So A, that keeps teachers from having to come up with their own goals because I provide it for them. And it allows us all to really make sure that that goal is job embedded. It's something we have to do anyway. It's something we value. It's something that's going to better the experience of students and better the experience of teachers. So our professional practice goal this year is to look at our success criteria and to look at our scoring practices, to calibrate those practices and to identify anchor papers so that if a teacher is ever alone scoring work and saying, gee, our target for this work was intermediate. Is this work actually intermediate? That teacher has an anchor paper to go to and to look at, but we'll be developing those over the course of the year. And honestly, I think anchor papers and using them well is something that a department needs to constantly revisit. And are you using student examples as those anchor papers or are you creating them? Student examples. If we base it on something we've created or something we borrow from another program, that doesn't reflect what our students are actually doing in real time in our experience. So having the anchor papers from our own instructional context is important. Right. So you mentioned a little bit about feedback in this process and determining the success criteria. So it seems, and we all know this, that feedback is so essential in a proficiency-based program. But can you just talk to us about why it's so essential? And is it just useful for students or is there a is it beneficial to teachers as well? It's beneficial to both teachers and students and program design in general. John Hattie points out that there's a really strong connection between feedback and student Mm -hmm. learning, 
right? And he says that it's it's among the top 10 highest influences on student learning. It's a common denominator of many other of those top 10. So we think of success criteria. Feedback is an essential element in using a success criteria well. Mm -hmm. So we know that the research, and this isn't language research, this is general education research, tells us feedback is a really important tool. When we look at Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, she talks about feedback as an essential element in culturally responsive teaching. She talks about feedback as an essential element in building a learning partnership with students. When we look at feedback for language learning, we can see the impact to helping students unpack. Maybe they have a pattern of errors, or maybe they have a pattern where they're not using descriptive language in a way that is at their level, right? So we often see students using descriptive language with simple adjectives or lists of adjectives and not understanding that there are all, there's all kinds of other rich language like adverbial clauses and things that we can chunk down even for novice learners to to help them build kind of a richer linguistic repertoire. Even if they're novices and they're plucking out memorized chunks of language, those can be building blocks. And so helping students look at, for example, text type or look at how they describe something and asking them questions. What other tools and resources do you have to make this a more interesting or a richer description? And then helping them look really clearly at understanding three adjectives is nice, but this other language construction looks actually more interesting and is going to pique the interest of the person listening to you in a much deeper way. And then helping them with that kind of with that kind of yeah. feedback. I had Becky Bray Rankin on the podcast, oh, last year sometime, and we were talking about rubrics. And she had this phrase that she has in the bottom of her rubrics, and she said, this time you chose to, next time you could. And that's very reminiscent of what you were just saying. I love pulling all these pieces together like that. Becky and I have talked a lot about rubric design. I've often called her when you know, our the rubric that we use, and we have a departmental rubric that is at least the springboard for everything that we're using in any teacher's classroom. And it's always being revised. It always goes through new iterations. And I often over the years found myself on the phone with Becky saying, would you do it this way or that way? And what do you think about yeah. this? Um, because she really has a um, a great skill set with developing. Yeah. I remember her piece of advice at the end of the episode, or she mentioned in the episode, just so you know, your rubric is never done. If you think it's done, you're wrong. <laughs> Amen, right? Yes. You had touched upon this a little bit at the beginning when you were talking about your journey and starting, but I am... Personally, for myself, I need to know, I would like to know some suggestions about how you can get teachers in your department, particularly if they're new to your department, this is new to them entirely. How can you get them on board without it being so overwhelming? I think first, if you, intentional collaboration is an important element considering what does the work look like? Spending a lot of time listening to teachers, observing them, not from an evaluative or supervisory perspective, 
but looking to identify their strengths. One of the things that I found very successful was identifying people with a certain strength and then talking to that person about that strength and asking them if they would care to do a presentation or share something with the department. So when I think about Rebecca Blue Wolf and some of the strengths that I saw in her classroom, and I don't think she'd be upset my sharing this. She was a little bit hesitant, for example, to write an article for the language educator when I suggested that she tell her story about moving from a very methodical, grammar-oriented textbook, page one, two, three teacher, to really loving thematic units and a proficiency-oriented approach. And she thought, hmm, I don't, who, wants to, who wants to hear my story? But we talked about the strengths that I had seen in her classroom, her writing strengths from things that I had seen her write either for the principal at the middle school or school committee or whatever different things that I had seen. And we were able to talk about her interest in writing and her strengths as a writer and to begin to build on that. And so I, starting from where people have strengths and interests makes a big difference in your ability to move forward, right? You can't be a one-person show and you can't be the knower of all things proficiency. Mm -hmm. In fact, I can tell specific times where I would have a department meeting and I would say, well, here's this interesting idea about proficiency and here's this article and people listened politely and they went away and they put it in their file and they probably never looked at it again. And then maybe two or three years later, a colleague at an, a Netful workshop came back to me and said, here's this fabulous uh, unit template. This is amazing. We need to be using this. And I just smiled politely because I remembered two or three years prior to that introducing this unit template that everybody filed away and never used. I'm like, well, okay, that's okay. <laughs> Right. So you have that kind of humility to to be able to say, A, you cannot be the one who delivers all the messages because people you're too close to it. And sometimes people are going to hear the same message from somebody else that they heard from you. They didn't take it in and do something with it from you. And you have to be okay with that. You can't take that because it's not personal. So you can't take it personally wonderful words for leaders you know so thank you for even using that word humility and that idea that they'll hear the same thing from somebody else and hear it differently and to not take that personally you spoke just quickly about the idea of collaboration in your department and using your anchor papers so you really are cultivating this climate of or this community of collaboration in your department and can you speak to the importance of that and the the benefits when you decide on what the collaboration is going to be and what it's going to look like, you have to think in terms of a vision and, and sharing that vision and having goals and, having, and setting outcomes. We really intentionally look at what is our time together? How are we going to use it? Because we've already established that our vision, our values are things like common thematic units, common assessments, a common understanding of what success looks like, A, that makes the teacher's daily life much easier because you're dividing the work and sharing the work. 
it allows for teachers who might be a singleton. So at the middle school level, my German and Chinese teachers are singleton teachers. They don't have language colleagues in that building. That kind of collaboration, common themes across languages, allows the Chinese and German teacher to work with teachers of other languages because we're developing the same kinds of language functions, the same kinds of performance tasks, common assessments. So that even though the Chinese teacher students are writing an assessment in Chinese, that teacher can still sit down with a teacher of French and share ideas and ask questions around what does proficiency look like at this level. And so really allowing teachers to build those common values and visions and setting those outcomes and then using whatever department time you have, using it wisely and intentionally you are inspiring me a ton with this right now. And I'm sure other teachers are, they're looking up, oh, how are we going to do these anchor papers? And oh, let's look at the success criteria and all of this. Where are you pulling your inspiration from to, to keep going with this after, you know, let's say a couple of years teaching? Sure. I have a lot of sources of inspiration. Some of them are people that I've known for a long time. I will say being involved in both my state organization, MAFLA, both as a board member, but also as an attendee at the annual conference, being involved in ACTFUL, being involved in NADSFUL, provide lots of opportunities, not only to network, but to find really amazing educators who are doing a lot of the work and, and on a similar journey so I follow people like Meredith White, who's on Twitter, and I follow people like Florencia Henshaw, Maris Hawkins. I am on LangChat on Twitter and learning from a lot of colleagues there. I'm always asking people, both in the language world and in the general education world, for recommendations on professional literature, trying to really spend a lot of time keeping up and reading that professional literature so that I'm constantly experiencing other perspectives on what good teaching and good learning can yeah. look like. Lifelong learner, right? It's so important. I love this so much. I'm happy to be sitting on the patio in the shade, reading on second language acquisition or reading on, you know, the, the three schools of thought on uh, explicit grammar instruction and understanding what the literature says and how does it break mm -hmm. down. That's wonderful. I, I hear you. I'm more than happy to do that stuff myself. <laughs> There's not a lot of us, but luckily those yeah. of us who are willing to do it will then do something like a podcast episode on it where we get all the major points and everybody can hear them. <laughs> right. So, and I have to say, I can't even begin. So I'm thinking about where are my inspirations? I could not even begin to list the many, many people who I follow online and who inspire me on a regular basis. Yeah, it's uh, always and, and constant. It's wonderful. And language teachers in particular are so generous, you know, not necessarily with the idea of, oh, here's a resource you can use that I've used, but just the, you know, reading something and then sharing their thoughts on it. Just the generosity of that is, right. is huge. We are a special breed, yeah. no doubt. 
So this is the part of our conversation where I like to pull the teacher curtain back a little bit and get to know Tim a little better. And again, I've known you for a while, but these are questions that I'm actually not sure how you're going to answer. So I'm going to ask you some this or that, choose one and maybe say why. Okay. You up for it? Yeah, I'm ready. So um, I've actually seen you tweet about your cooking so i wanted to ask a cooking question i see you (laughs) laughing uh so are you an adventurous cook or do you stick to what is tried and true and you know is going to work and you're going to like if i'm cooking just at home i can be adventurous i find sort of experimenting with a recipe to be therapeutic Mm -hmm. trying things out and as long as it's only me or the two of Mm -hmm. us i'm not worried because I've had to throw a few recipes in the trash. Mm-hmm. If I'm cooking for others, then I'm definitely following recipes or calling my mother. <laughs> okay. And if you're out in a restaurant, do you go to restaurants where you know you like the food and you kind of get the same things? Or do you like to try new stuff? This answer is surprising me. But when I think about it, I go to restaurants where I know I like it and, and it's predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that surprises me a little. Oh, interesting. See, getting to know yourself a little better through the this or that questions. Okay. And the next one is you have a destination. Do you get there the fastest way and enjoy the destination because it's something you're looking forward to? Or do you take the scenic route and enjoy the journey along the way? A little bit of both. It really depends on where I'm going, you know, what the destination is or the traffic pattern. So I think one time we were going out to Springfield for a MAFLA event. It might have actually have been the the um, Proficiency Academy several summers ago out in Westfield State. And I remember taking a scenic route where I went down to Providence, Rhode Island, and through back roads through Rhode Island and Connecticut. It took me twice as long, but it was really pretty ride through rolling hills. And it was just really relaxing. I'm sure that there are teachers that would like to connect with you to dive in deeper, figure out where you are, what you're presenting. What's the best way for teachers to reach out to you? I am on Twitter at TJEAG. So I'm easy to find there. It's actually the only social media I use now. I have really intentionally decided to limit all the other social media that I was on And so I have completely dumped things like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter's the only place that I'm on. Yeah. And you're quite active there. So it's a great place to to follow you. So before we say our goodbyes, I was wondering if you could leave us with a really hearty, even concrete piece of advice for teachers when they are not necessarily department heads looking to build a proficiency-based department, but maybe even some suggestions for those leaders or just how can they be better about being a member of a proficiency-based department? Teaching is complex. Teaching is hard, particularly right now. But good teaching has always been hard. I think really central piece of advice is find one thing that's interesting and worthwhile for you to pursue and focus on that one thing and try not always to focus on just the big picture. The big picture can be really overwhelming, particularly if you are brand new to the idea of teaching for proficiency. There are so many, so many pieces 
to it. So often we can go to a workshop and walk away and think, oh my gosh, all of these things I should be doing, could be doing, and I'm not doing any of them. I feel like an imposter. Don't fall into that imposter syndrome mentality. Take a breath, step back, refocus, and look for what are you good at and build on your own strengths and celebrate your own strengths and find others to celebrate your strengths with you. Thank you for ending on that really positive tone because throughout the pandemic, there's been so much negativity about teaching and I get it. I know it's been hard. I tend to be a make lemonade out of the lemons kind of person. So the idea of leaving us with that positivity of celebrating our our strengths is really wonderful. So thank you for that. Thank you for everything that you have shared with us today, Tim. This has been a blast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. What are your takeaways from that conversation with Tim Egan? Like me, you're probably thinking about ways to collaborate within your department so that you all have a clear and common idea of what your collective goals are for students. Be sure to check out the show notes to connect with Tim. You'll also see the link to sign up for Talking Points, my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. There are also links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together, either in person in your school or remotely. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.